Hey everybody, it's T with Abduction Enigma Podcast. What I got for you guys this week is an odd encounter that happened to three women in Stanford, Kentucky in 1976. Now this is a recording lecture, but we will go over it at the end. It is a fascinating case, and when I ran across this audio, I couldn't help but put this on the podcast. Because not only is it a piece of history, but it is quite a fascinating case ones with parallels of abduction encounters today. With that being said, let's get it. Now I do want to thank Wendy Connors of the Faded Disc Tapes because that's where I got this audio from. It's actually been covered on Somewhere in the Skies and quite a few other podcasts. So I don't want to do my usual retelling of the story and just breaking it down. We're going to do a breakdown at the end, but I want you guys to hear this awesome freaking audio. And I want to be a little different than everybody else. So, I mean, it gets it out there, and I'm just glad I found it. Now, this podcast isn't about my musings or anything like that. It's to figure out what's going on with the alien abduction phenomena and get some of these lesser-known cases out there. And also bring into question some of the more famous cases, such as we did with the Allagash abductions. It gives you two different perspectives so that you may see two different ways. You can be skeptical, and you can also be a believer. So with that said, let's get it. The following tape contains a description of an encounter with a UFO as experienced by three women in Kentucky on January 6, 1976. The three women were Mona Stafford, age 35, Louise Smith, 44, and Elaine Thomas, 54. The three women's getting together that day was completely unplanned. It was during this get-together they discovered it was Mona's birthday, so they decided about 9.15 to go for a late supper at the Redwood restaurant. They got there about 10 p.m. All three ladies brought their sketch pads with them because they wanted to sketch a painting that was hanging on the wall. A customer asked Louise to sketch him, and she did. Then Louise noticed it was 11.15, and she had to go to work early the next morning, so they paid their checks and left. The three women left the restaurant in Louise Smith's 1967 Chevy Nova. They began their 40-minute drive to Liberty, about 29 to 30 miles away. The ladies drove through the countryside heading from Stanford to Houstonville. They had turned from Highway 27 and were traveling on Highway 78. They had just passed the Davis Drive-In Theater and were continuing along the country road when Mona yelled, Speed up! Look! Look! It's going to crash! Mona and Louise thought the ball of fire was a jet airliner about to crash. They wanted to help if there were any survivors. When they looked up, it kept getting larger and larger and larger. It came down at such a speed that nothing could have stopped. Nothing, but it did. Then it just swayed, like something real lightweight It seemed to just float in the air. After swaying in one spot, it turned at an angle from the driver's left front to left side and behind car. This is the women's description of the UFO as I saw it on the night of January 6th and as they remembered it before their hypnosis session. Elaine was the last of the women to see the object. And don't forget that Elaine, throughout the entire experience, seemed to have a different perception 
as did the other women of everything that happened. This is the object as Mona saw it. She described it as big as a house, saucer-shaped with a dome on top, red lights rotating around it, four lights under the red lights. One of the four was yellow, dim, maybe a window, an extremely bright bluish-white light on the top. The object is described by Louise. It was huge, it covered the road, and was in the fields on both sides. It was a metallic gray and had a kind of a dull glow. It had a dome with a white light effect to it. It had red lights going all the way around, completely going around it, and three lights that were underneath the red lights. This is the object as seen by Elaine. This huge dome-shaped object, it was beautiful. I can't describe it. There was this one huge light in the center on the bottom, and it seemed like it was focusing a beam on us. Then I saw, just like a searchlight or something, it was a white-blue fluorescent light. It seemed like it was coming from underneath. At the time, Elaine tried to get out of the car, and Mona pulled her over and shut the door. Then Mona got hold of the steering wheel and tried to help Louise. Louise at the time was having trouble controlling the car. The light from the object flooded the car, causing their eyes to burn and their heads to hurt. The car felt like it was being pulled backwards over speed bumps in the road. Louise tried to go forward, but the car was going backwards. The car was out of control. Louise hollered for Mona to help. Mona looked and saw that the speedometer was registering 85 miles an hour, and she told Louise to slow down. Louise showed her that her foot was not on the gas pedal. These are some of the women's feelings. Mona and Louise felt terrified, while Elaine felt at peace. When the object was behind the car, Louise saw a blue light in the rearview mirror. Mona saw light flash on the hood of the car. Mona and Louise thought that it was a state trooper that had pulled behind them, but then they realized it was the object. The very last thing that the women remembered after the light came into the car was that the red light had come on on the dashboard. Then, just like the snap of a finger, they were back in Houstonville. Mona said it was like something had picked us up in Stanford and set us down in Houstonville. Louise was not holding onto the steering wheel. The women were holding their heads. A short time later, the women arrived at the trailer of Louise Smith. They all wondered how they had gotten there so quickly. They all felt a burning sensation on their necks. They had headaches, and Mona said her eyes hurt. Once inside the trailer, the women discovered several strange things. The clock in the kitchen should have showed 12, but instead it was 1.25. They had arrived about an hour and 25 minutes later than they should have. Elaine's wristwatch stopped working. Louise said the minute hand on her watch was going almost as fast as the second hand, and the second hand was just spinning. All three of the women had burns on their necks. Louise and Elaine on the back of their neck. Mona's was on the left side of her neck under her ear. Mona also had a burn under her mood ring, and they said Mona's eyes were as red as an albino rabbit. Louise noticed a light on at her neighbor's and asked Mr. Lowell Lee to come over to her house. The women told him what they had seen. He saw the marks on their necks and the women's drawing of the object. He remembers it was after 1 a.m. because he was watching late-night TV. 
The next day, the women discovered the paint on the car was blistered and peeling. They went back where they had bought their gas the night before and found they used within eight cents worth of gas, meaning that they could not have been driving during that hour and 25 minutes. Following the night of January 6, all of the women experienced the same reactions, extreme fatigue, nausea, and diarrhea. All chain smoked. All three women felt thirsty constantly. All lost weight, and their skin burned when they showered. The three women noticed personality changes. A man who worked with Jerry at Continental Can Company had relatives who lived in Casey County, and they had given him a newspaper. This man brought the newspaper into Jerry, and after reading the article about the women, Jerry called Louise Smith to see if he could put their minds at ease and find out what might have happened during that lost hour and 25 minutes. At first, Louise was leery of having Jerry and two other strange gentlemen meet with her and the other two ladies. At that time, Jerry called and asked if I would agree to talk with Louise. After talking to Louise and promising that a woman would be there along with the gentleman, she agreed that we could come down and meet with them. On the very first trip down, when we stepped into Louise's trailer, I felt as though I had known the women. Later, I learned the women had all three felt the same. Under hypnosis, Louise remembered seeing a woman with long, dark hair. She felt it was me. Later, she told me she knew that it was me, that even though my experience had happened in 1973 and hers happened in 1976, she was sure that she had seen me aboard at the same time as herself. During our first meeting, we questioned the women about their sighting. We took notes. We checked blistered paint on the car. We drove to the restaurant and to the general area where the women first saw the object. We took pictures of the women, trailer, car, restaurant, and the area the women had traveled that night. Our next meeting took place in March at the home of Mona Stafford's parents. The three ladies, Mona's parents, the investigators, and Dr. Leo Sprinkle were present. Dr. Sprinkle is the Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Wyoming. He was there to put Mona in a light hypnotic trance to see if their incident warranted any further hypnosis. Under hypnosis, Mona said, We was just driving along, and I thought this airplane was going to crash. I told Lou to speed up so we could help if somebody was alive. It just stopped. It just sit there a minute and started moving. It was big and it had lights around it, red. They were rotating and it moved so slowly and it just went behind us. It cut its lights off. I was scared. I wanted to go, but Elaine wanted us to stop. Mona began crying. Lou thought a state trooper was behind us. She thought he was going to help us. Mona was still crying. All of a sudden, the car was pulled backwards. I felt like we were going over something rough. Lou couldn't take care of the car. I tried to help her. Elaine was trying to get out. This light all come in the car. Lou had her foot off the gas. The car was registering 85 miles per hour. All this light, my head hurt, my eyes hurt so bad. 
On the weekend of July 23rd through 25th, 1976, the investigators again met with the women. This time the meeting took place at the Brown Motel in Liberty. We were joined by Mr. James Young, a detective for the Lexington Police Department and president of the Kentucky Polygraph Association. He was there to administer polygraph tests to the women. Bob Pratt, top UFO investigator reporter for the National Enquirer was there. Also, Dr. Leo Sprinkle joined us to apply two sessions of hypnosis to each of the women. The meeting began with the women one by one taking their polygraph test. The hypnosis began with Louise Smith. We ate supper. We sketched a picture and it was there. Louise begins to sob. What is it? It looks like it's going to crash. God, what is it? It's going behind me. Louise was sobbing. I don't want to look at it no more. It's so bright. My eyes hurt. Mrs. Thomas wants me to stop, but I can't. She wants to look at it. My head hurts. I can't control my car. I can't control my wheel. I asked Mona to help me. I'm going 85 miles per hour, Mona. I don't want to go through that gate. What's wrong with my car? It's going backwards. Oh, God, don't let me hit that wall. Where am I? Louise was sobbing. Where am I? Please, somebody help me. Please. Oh, my head. Where am I? I can't see. It's so dark. It's hot. I'm burning. Where am I? Help me, Lord, please. Where's Mona? Where's Mona? Please let me see. I've got to stay awake. Can't. I just can't. I'm so sleepy. Where is Elaine? I'm so sleepy. I'm so sleepy. I've got to stay awake. Please, somebody say something. My head hurts. I've got to go home. I'm so dry, so dry, my mouth so dry. I just want to sleep. Louise sleeps for a few minutes. I think I see some lights. It looks like a street light. It is a street light. Thank God for a street light. It was just a dream. We're in Houstonville already. How did that happen? How did we get here? Dr. Sprinkle tells her to go back in memory. Louise begins to cry again. I don't want to go through that gate. I can't see the gate. It must be open. The following is Mona under hypnosis. This was their first session of regular hypnosis during that month of July. Mona, we was just driving along. I thought this airplane was going to crash. It was big. It went behind us. It cut out its lights. I was scared. Mona was crying. Shaney. Shaney. Shaney's a name that, nickname that they called Elaine. Shaney wandered out. This light all come in the car. Car was registering 85. Lou had her foot off the gas pedal. My head hurt. My eyes hurts so bad. I see an eye. It's kind of like a crystal. Just kind of burst, you know. Just comes back and forth to me. 
I still see that eye. It's like lights or something coming out of the eye. My hand feels like it's tied down or something. It's hurting. It's numb. Mona's crying softly. It's dark and that eye's with me, just like I'm in the dark. I feel all by myself. I just feel numb. Just can't breathe good. There's not air. Feels like something's up around me. The air feels better. Touch something ahead, smooth. I just feel like something's all around me. Feels like somebody breathing on me. The eye, it's got a light in it. The following is Elaine under hypnosis. Elaine appeared disturbed. It's all dark. She was breathing deeply. Something won't let me talk. So frightened. It's just darkness. There's a weight on my chest. The pain. I'm lying down. I'm all alone. Elaine sobs. Something was pressing on my throat, like hands. It's just darkness. There's something wrong with my throat. There's a road. It's just all black and white, like a picture of a road. It looks so foggy, I can't see, can't see. It's so foggy. Feel all alone. I just can't think. Something is in my way, just blackness. I can't move my feet. My God, good Lord. Elaine has dry sobs. Why? So foggy, like the cloud. Like in the picture, I just see the shadows as they pass by, just around me. They won't let me see a light. It was coming up over me. I'm afraid to look warm. I couldn't see the eyes. It was a blur. Somebody's close to me. I'm afraid they'll hear me because they choke me. They won't let me talk, feeling so tired. At that time, the investigators asked Elaine, did she mean that she felt like she was being choked at the time of her incident and that they didn't want her to talk during that time? Or was she referring to right then? And she told us that right then, right then, that they didn't want her during the hypnosis session, they didn't want her to say anymore that she had said too much. This is Louise's second session of hypnosis the following day. Um, incidentally, these are only very short pieces from the transcripts from the hypnosis. The hypnosis, the tapes that we have at home for all sessions last at roughly eight hours. There's a lot of blankness on the tapes, but um, these are just a few of the highlights from each of the sessions. Louisa's second session. Don't want to go through that gate. Shaney, where's Mona? Somebody please talk to me, please. Louise was begging. I wish you wouldn't do that. I'm so scared. I don't want to go to sleep. I've got to stay awake. Feel so dry. Please get it off. Get it off. It's hot. Just let me go. I can't swallow. Louise was sobbing heavily. Let me go home. Please don't touch me. Let go of my arm. My mouth so dry. Louise was swallowing hard. So hot. 
hot all over. I want to go home. I can't do no more. Louise was sobbing. I'm so weak. I want to see you. Let me see you. Please, just let me see you. Let me look at your eyes. I can't, I can't hurt you. So weak. I can't get up. I'm so dry, so weak. Let me up. I won't tell. I won't tell nothing. I just want to see. I can go home after a while. I want to see. I'm so weak. Can't fight it no more. So hot, so dry. Can I go home now? I want to find Mona and Shaney. I want to go home. So fast. I'm going so fast. Am I going home? I see a light. It is a street light. It's so hot. Kind of odd, like mold. I can't. I promised I wouldn't tell. I can't tell. Just let me go home. They had my arm. I don't want to tell. They weren't mean. They just wouldn't let me go home. Sprinkle, you'll be able to remember the events. If there is any other information, you'll be able to remember. This is some of the things Louise had to say after hypnosis. I asked to see, and when they did, I didn't want to see it no more. I saw a form, closed my eyes. I was scared, all alone. Didn't know what was going on. It seemed I wanted to go home so bad, and they told me I couldn't. Then I was sleepy again. I remember saying, I won't tell if you let me go. Something told me, you can't go. This is Mona's second session. She had tears in her eyes as she said, it's like fire on me. It's all over me. I can't see. Mona was sobbing. I can see sky up there. I'm looking up through rocks, hard to breathe. Oh, my eyes, oh, like they've been pulled out. The eye, purple, my head hurts, can't see, it's dark. There's a crack in the wall, it's like a web. Oh, something's all over me. Oh, he's coming at me, all over me. Water like water all over me, but it's not wet. It's like liquid, but it's not wet. My hand, something's on it that's got me down. The light, oh, my foot hurts. They're pulling my feet, liquid. My feet, wrist, my feet are bent backwards. I'm going fast, oh. Feet stuck on floor. It's hot. My neck, take it off. Hurts. Can't move my neck. There. Back. Lou. This was Elaine's second session. It's all dark. Just emptiness. Dark and peaceful. They were so frightened. I wasn't. Car took off like a jet. It just swooped off. Then it was rough. So rough. It seemed to be vibrating somehow, then blank. It just all blotted out, just darkness. For a long while, Elaine could see only darkness. Lou said, they're going to take us aboard. I began to pray. The car started vibrating. Lou asked Mona to help me. I can't hold it. The red light on the dash. The car is gone. So dark. 
There was so much pressure on my chest, I couldn't talk, like a weight above my left breast, a round metal bullet-shaped object, only larger, so much pressure, it hurt. It was as though they wanted me to hush. I kept struggling. They won't let me breathe. Pressure on my throat, tightness. They talked, but no sound. There were so many. They kept passing the window. Window was foggy. They looked about four feet tall. Couldn't raise my hands. I wanted to get away, feeling no need to talk, just no need. Terrible fear because I don't understand. They didn't care. I will understand someday, but I don't now. That was a small part of each of the ladies' two hypnosis sessions. I will try to remember some of the other things that I felt were unusual about the ladies' experience at the time and afterwards. Mona told us that she felt like her eyes had been taken out of the socket, placed on her cheek, and then replaced. The ladies felt as if something had been poured over their bodies, they thought like a mold, and then removed. One of them said that when it was removed, it felt like a Band-Aid coming off. After the incident, we were told that there were several Bibles that were missing. I believe it was seven of them. I'm not sure if it was all three ladies. I know it was one in particular, but I thought all three women had Bibles missing from their homes. Um, after hypnosis, when they discovered where the actual abduction had taken place, the ladies were terrified to go near there, and yet on one night, Louise had a strange um, compulsion to go back to the place. When she first was there, she had rings on her fingers, and then she looked down, and her rings were missing. A couple of days later, I don't believe it was the next day, I think it was a few days later, she returned home from work, and she told me that right in the center of her trailer steps, it looked as if somebody had deliberately just placed them very carefully in the center of the steps. There lay her rings. This frightened Louise so badly that she threw her rings into a creek that ran behind her trailer. After the incident, all of the ladies' personalities changed. For instance, Elaine began dressing more colorfully, and she developed a psychic ability. On one occasion after the incident, we were going back down to meet with the women, and a friend of mine who had heard about the case asked if she could go along because she was really interested to meet the women. We went down to Louise's trailer. There was Mona, Louise, Elaine, my friend, Jerry, and myself. We were talking with the women for a while, and then after a while, Elaine began telling me some things about my horse, and she was pretty accurate about him. Then she looked at my friend and told her something personal about herself. My friend said, no, it isn't true. And Elaine looked straight at her and said, yes, it is. And my friend said, no, it isn't. And Elaine said, yes, it, yes, it is. Elaine never did back down. The most that she did was say that well, if it isn't now, it will be shortly. I didn't know until a while later. I hadn't seen my friend for a long time. And another mutual friend, I was talking with her on the telephone, and she asked me something about my friend. And it turned out to be the exact thing 
that Elaine had said at Louise's home about my friend that she had been denying, and here it was true. Another incident I recall is Elaine telling us of a substance that fell out of the sky. She described it as a, like a golden angel hair and that it had fallen out of the sky and covered her. I believe that the other two ladies witnessed this and that it also fell on them. I think that this possibly happened on more than one occasion. I can just remember seeing Elaine as she was telling us about it. She seemed like a little child. She was very delighted um, as she was telling us about this golden angel hair that had fallen on her. Another incident that I recall, and I think is very important, is one where Mona was home alone in her trailer. Her trailer sat on the same property as her parents' home. They lived very close by. I believe it was late at night. A man materialized right in Mona's trailer. She described him as looking like someone from out of the Bible. She said he was wearing a long robe and that he had long shoulder-length red hair and a beard. Both the beard and the hair had finger curls. Mona was very frightened by this, and she said that she felt like she needed to make contact with her parents. She felt if she didn't make contact that she was either going to be abducted or something was going to happen to her. I don't recall exactly why she had difficulty um, in being able to reach her parents. I don't know if she meant that she couldn't get to the telephone or if um, she wasn't getting a dial tone or something, but in the beginning she was having trouble making contact. Eventually she managed to call her parents on the phone, and as she did this, the man disappeared. I believe it was the next day Mona made a sketch of the man. She ran us a copy and mailed it to us. Um, in the meantime, each time that Jerry and I went down to Kentucky to check with the women and see if they had any further memory or if they had drawn any other pictures or, or what have you, um, each time that we had gone there, we took our camera and we took pictures of what was happening. We took a tape recorder and, and taped the sessions and took notes. Most of the time, we went to Louise's trailer. On this particular time, um, for some reason, I'm trying to remember if Elaine had already passed away, but Elaine was not there, and I believe Louise was out of state. At that time, we went to Mona's trailer, and we brought with us pictures that we had taken from the trip before. I did not know that besides the sketch, Mona had all so um, made a painting on black velvet of the gentleman who had materialized in her home. Mona was aware that we had pictures, but I didn't tell her that at the trip before, Jerry and I had stopped at the abduction site on the way home. We had some pictures left on the roll of film, so we each took a few pictures of each other standing in front of the wall at the abduction site. When we got home to my house, 
there were still one or two pictures on the roll, so we snapped the couple pictures that were left because we were anxious to get the film developed. When the film was developed and we got it back, we discovered that the rest of the roll of film, the pictures taken earlier that day, were all clear. Only the pictures taken at the abduction site had little round globes or balls of light on the pictures. There's one picture in particular of myself where there's several of these round balls or, or globes surrounding me. And one of Jerry's pictures, there's a very, in the corner of the picture is a very predominant round globe. We took the pictures to the lab that does the work um, for the drugstore in our area. And we asked the gentleman if we left the negatives and the pictures, if he could get back with us and, and tell us um, what he thought was wrong with the pictures. A few days later, we got a call to meet with him. And when we got there, he told us that it appeared that there was nothing wrong with my camera. There was nothing wrong with the roll of film. It wasn't caused by the development of the film. It wasn't condensation. They didn't really know what caused the globes. The closest thing that they could imagine was possibly that there was an energy source that the naked eye couldn't see, but that the camera had somehow picked up. This had never happened to any of my pictures that I've ever taken before in the past. And it never happened again until several years later, there was an incident with another camera. And then several years after that, there was another incident taken with still another camera. And if you're interested, I'll tell you about that later. Anyway, when we took the pictures down to show Mona, Jerry and I were both in for a shock. As we were sitting on the couch at Mona's house, roughly three or four feet in front of us was the oral painting of the man who materialized hanging on our wall. And unlike the sketch, the painting had these little round balls of light or, or just little round white circles on the painting. I didn't even realize until sometime later when someone was looking. I took a picture of this oral painting and um, somebody happened to notice that if you look at the picture of me at the abduction site where the, the balls are surrounding me, that they form, if you turn the picture around, they form almost the exact pattern as Mona had put on her painting. Um, Jerry and I were dumbfounded when we first got there. We just sat on the couch looking at each other. We both had seen the picture and we both realized that, you know, like, what in the world are those round circles or, or balls doing on Mona's picture? Then we looked at her and said, Mona, why did you put those round circles or balls on your picture? And she said she didn't really know that after her hypnosis session, when she sat down to paint, that she didn't know what she was going to draw until she was actually doing it. And she had no idea as to why. At that time, we showed her the pictures, but there had been no mention that there were any kind of 
dots or circles or globes or whatever on these pictures. Also, that same night, um, I happened to be standing in front of Mona's couch, and I must have looked funny because Mona and Jerry both asked me if I was all right. It was just a really extremely weird sensation. As I stood there, it felt like electricity was going all through my body, and the only thing I can remember was thinking, I've got to get off of this spot. I don't really know why I felt like I needed to get off of that spot, except for the feeling of this electricity like running through my body. And when I sat back down, I was all right, but it was just um, a very weird sensation that I can't forget. Uh, another incident that happened was one night I was sleeping, it's right before I divorced my ex-husband, and I was in bed with my seven-year-old daughter. I remember that my night habits weren't the same. Normally during the night I get up and use the restroom several times, and a lot of times I would stop and get a drink of pop or something and get back into bed. I usually have very vivid dreams. Very few times in my life, um, and it's only been a couple times since my incident, that, that I remember going to bed and everything is just black. And I don't get up during the night to use the restroom. I don't remember having any kind of dream at all. It's just a blackness. This particular night, when I woke up the next day, I had this really funny feeling like I haven't been here all night. And it didn't make any sense to me whatsoever because, you know, I'm thinking, Peggy, you're crazy. You had to be here all night. You, you went to bed with your seven-year-old daughter. You woke up in bed. You're like, where else would you be? And the other thought that was on my mind as I was waking up, I had two thoughts. One, I haven't been here all night. And the second one was everybody who's been abducted has a mark. And I don't know what kind of mark. The only thing in my mind is I, as I kept thinking of this throughout the day was possibly like a birthmark or something, but I didn't know what kind of mark. In the meantime, Jerry had called, and um, I told him about this feeling, this very strong feeling, a feeling that I hadn't been home all night. So we talked for a little while, and he hung up. Um, later that day... Jerry was talking to Louise, and she asked him, she said, Jerry, is Peggy all right? And he said, yeah, I just talked to her a while ago. Why? And she says, during the night, and somehow I, I think that it was like 2 o'clock in the morning or something that she had told him, but anyway, during the night, she insists that she saw me standing at the foot of her bed. Do I believe it happened? I don't know. All I know is that it wasn't my normal sleep routine and that Louise insists that I was standing at the foot of her bed. Probably the incident that was really the most unusual concerning the whole case, again, involves Elaine Thomas. I was pregnant with my little girl that passed away, and I received a telephone call from Elaine. During this call, Elaine told me it's going to look like I'm dead, but they're coming back to get me. I was very uncomfortable with this call because over the period of time, I had become very close with these ladies, 
and it made me sad when she said that she was going to be dead. So hindsight, I wish that I had questioned her more about it. Um, shortly after she said it, I changed the subject. The feeling that I got when she said it was going to look like she was dead, I took it to mean that possibly she was going to be in a car accident, that possibly they would find the car but not her body. I really had no idea what she meant. I really didn't think it was going to happen. And I'd give anything if, if I could do it again. And there are so many questions I would have asked her. Um, three months after this phone conversation, Elaine was dead. Elaine was dead under very mysterious circumstances. Outwardly, she was given every indication of having a massive heart attack. Elaine was rushed to the hospital. Um, they performed all the tests that you would when a person's having a heart attack. All of her tests came back normal. I believe the first time that this happened to her, I think they kept her in the hospital like for a week. Um, at the end of the week, the doctor couldn't find anything wrong with her heart, so he sent her home with some nerve medicine. He couldn't figure out, you know, what else was wrong with her. So Elaine was home, I think, roughly a week. And again, all the outward symptoms of having a massive heart attack came on again. Again, she was rushed to the hospital. Again, she was given the test. The test came back normal. I believe at this time she was put into um, intensive care. During her time in intensive care, Mona had come by to visit her, and Mona told us that Elaine told her, Mona, it really did happen to us. You've got to make them believe it really did happen. Um, I believe that Elaine was next moved into a semi-private room. Early that day, Elaine vomited something with a heavy orally substance to it. The nurses disposed of it and marked it on her chart. Later that day, when the doctor came in, he told us that he asked Elaine if she had had anything with a heavy orally base to it, anything like castor oil, mineral oil, olive oil, any type of heavy oral, and Elaine told him no. He told Jerry that he had wished, if he would have known that she was going to die that night, that this hadn't been disposed of, um, he would have liked to have had it analyzed. Later that day, before Elaine passed away, a ball of light had come into her room, and this ball of light was bouncing around the room and the other patient that was in the room with Elaine must have left out a holler or a scream or something because it got the nurse's attention. And she told us that she did see the ball of light. But um, while the light was there, and I guess it was terrifying, the other patient in the room, Elaine said to her, not to worry. It's just them. They've come back for me. Later that same night, Elaine left this world. How she left it, we don't really know because um, 
as far as the doctor's concerned, he don't think that she really had a heart attack. He don't really think that she died from a heart condition. But her husband and her mother didn't allow an autopsy to be performed, and the doctor said he had to write something down on the death certificate, so he went ahead and wrote heart attack, but he didn't really feel like it was a normal heart attack. But here are two short statements from two different newspapers concerning Elaine's death. One from the Casey County News um, says, cause of death uncertain. Did Elaine Thomas, as many people believe, die from a heart attack? Maybe, maybe not. The doctor in Somerset, where Elaine was taken for chest pain, said he couldn't figure it out, said her husband. He thought at first it was a heart attack, but later he was uncertain. The pains would come back later, causing Otis to remember something he'll never forget. She mentioned sharp pains in her chest and said she couldn't breathe, he said. It was the exact same description she gave the night she was taken up in the UFO. I really didn't pay much attention to it at the time, but it, the description she gave the National Enquirer under hypnosis, described her to a T when she complained about her chest pains. By me reading that Enquirer article, it brought back to me the way she acted the night she died. It made me think there could have been something to it. The second newspaper statement came from Mona. Mona, who was with um, Elaine during her final days, doesn't believe it was heart trouble that killed Elaine. Her throat and chest hurt her something terrible. At night, she said lights, blinding lights came at her from all sides, and she heard the voices of the aliens speaking to her. She told me, people are going to say I died, but that won't be true. Only my body is going to die. They're going to take my spirit with them. Times when we want to give up, this is the main case that keeps Jerry and I struggling to try to find out just what is the answer to UFOs. As you know from the other night, we both have our own separate opinions. I think Jerry's starting to lean a little bit my way, but um, th this is the case. Anytime that you feel like you want to just give up and, and not care anymore about what UFOs are or what it's all about, you remember this case and you feel like you got to keep going and you got to keep trying to find out what the answer is. One of the last things that I'll say, and I apologize for talking so long, is that back when I first married Jerry, I, I became very curious as to why some people had very close encounters and or missing time. It seemed like there must be some common denominator. When I first married Jerry, he used to say that somebody was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I just really didn't feel this, and I keep saying, no, I don't think so, Jerry. I think I think that you must be chosen or picked or whatever. So, um, and taken many, many reports over the years along with Jerry, and talking to many, many people, I began asking them, after I took the report, I asked them, you know, like, what were their interests? Um, did they have any hobbies? I tried to get a feel of the person. What I discovered was that everybody who had missing time or a very close encounter, at least in all the cases that I talked to, number one, they weren't the type of people 
that were real hard-nosed, like, I'm from Missouri, and, you know, like, I don't believe unless you show me or prove it to me. They weren't Downton Thomases. They seemed to be sensitive people, people that were sensitive to the things around them. That was one thing. Second, they all, everybody that I ever talked to had a belief in God, not to the point of being fanatical, but I never talked to anybody who claimed to be an atheist and had a missing time or a very close encounter. The third common denominator is a creative ability. Over and over, I heard people express that they were interested in writing, they were artists, they worked with crafts, they were involved in drama, they played music, not the least of which the ladies in Kentucky. All three ladies were very accomplished artists. Louise Smith also wrote poetry. When we were there, she gave us a small booklet, excuse me, a small booklet of poems that she had written, and she also played piano and played the guitar. Um, you see this just over and over in our own UFO support group. We're very often surprised by one of the members coming and, and bringing either some artwork that they did or an elderly gentleman who has carved just absolutely fantastic canes. It's just, um, you would never even picture any of these people having the ability to do this, and, and yet um, this creative ability just seems to, to come up over and over again. I neglected to say that when the ladies had their polygraph test, they all passed the test with flying colors. Jerry said, um, you might be interested to know that the gentleman who gave the polygraph test to the women died roughly two years later. He had a rare blood disease. He just thought that was kind of interesting. Also, we'd like to let you know that we have many, many documents, including um, Louise's car had to be taken to a repair shop for um, the electrical system the following days, but we have, and Mona went to the eye doctor, we have copies of the bills for all of their things, um, all kind of documents, all kind of pictures, um, some tape recordings of different things, all of the hypnosis session, we have tapes of that. So I want to thank you for listening to this tape, and I hope that the information helps you some. Thanks. So I should probably specify. The faded disc tapes have her by a different name, with an unknown time in which she gave this talk. The time I haven't tracked down, but this is actually Peggy Schnell, who also investigated the case. Now that I'm doing so much research on this case, I have actually pinned down who this is, when at the time I wasn't too familiar. But I'll throw in a little extra here. While Peggy Schnell did work on the case, some of these facts that she puts out there they don't indeed go with the investigation I've already put in. So we're coming up on almost a year of me working on the book about this. And I find facts in here that actually contradict what 
the lady said from the Pratt Files and through numerous other sources. While there's not a whole lot of sources, there are a few that are very detailed. And my main point is going into the words of the women themselves and the people who investigated it. Now, Peggy Schnell would be included in that if she hadn't been forgetting facts within this talk and also kind of adding extra things that, like I said, contradict what I have already found. Now, this is March 6th, 2024, and I did this podcast a year or two ago. Now, here's the thing. Once I eventually finish the book, and I can make a detailed podcast for everybody to hear, I will do that. And I will address this fact. But for the time being, this is what I've got. Now, that was a talk by Linda Morrill. She was an investigator and friends of all three women and also an abductee and researcher herself. Now the whole case is so fascinating and it has other parallels to other cases too. There were quite a few things that stood out to me in this. And one of the main things is the physical damage that these women suffered, which we continue to find in most alien abduction cases. Now these women's eyes hurt, they had headaches, they had burning on their necks, extreme fatigue, diarrhea, nausea, and constantly thirsty. That's repeated over and over and over again. All of these women lost weight, and it was painful when they showered. So, it's almost like a sunburn, as I've heard it coined like. It's like whatever this light is, or maybe even the lights from the craft itself, seem to do something to our bodies. Much like the famous Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Richard Dreyfus sunburned on half of his face. Now it's the same thing with the eye pain. I've heard it described as like conjunctivitis almost. Just a red irritated eye. Debbie Cobble suffered that very thing. And there's many other cases just like that. Now like the Betty and Barney Hill case, the women talk about the headache. More specifically with Barney Hill, his head pounded when they were trying to communicate with him. Could that have been what was going on, or was it maybe the light that shined into the car? Was it perhaps a combination of both? I saw another striking parallel with the Betty and Barney Hill case in there, and that was from Louise. She said, let go of my arm, implying that they were trying to take her out of the car or were perhaps moving her. Well, this is the same thing that happened in the Betty and Barney Hill case. All of these women were in a dark place and were all scared. Now, all three women began to act differently. But the one who stood out to me the most, and apparently to others, was Elaine. Now, immediately I picked up on this when I first listened to it. I wrote down right by her name, because it was questionable, that perhaps out of the three women that might possibly continue to have contact, she would be the one. This implies to me that perhaps she has experienced this before. 
The implication being that when the craft was there, she tried to get out of the car, only to be yanked back in. Now, it may seem like a long shot, but merely by the fact that she was dressing more colorfully and began to get psychic abilities, allegedly, tells me that something was really going on. That is to say, something I've been working on personally and been trying to note, this case is almost perfect for it. And that is an abductee versus a contactee or experiencer. The interpretation of the experience. It appears that Elaine is more of an experiencer rather than an abductee, while the other two would be considered abductees. Because to them it was more traumatic, while to Elaine it was not. She seemed to become more colorful and vibrant, which is a stark contrast to the other two. Now this isn't to say that the other two were depressed or having issues, but it is to say that Elaine took it a different way. She was even quoted as saying it was dark and peaceful, even though it seemed to be very traumatic upon initial hearing of it. Within some time frame, her perspective changed. Now, I noted that seems to be the case. Now, both Louise and Elaine began to pray during the experience. Now, note for my demonic ufologist people out there, right? All the UFO nonce or demons that didn't stop the experience. But I digress. I also take note that similar to Pat's case in Dr. Carla Turner's book, Taken, we have a long robe-wearing man materialize to Mona. Now, this was in her home, and she tried to contact her parents, and note that she couldn't, which is something we find with the UFO phenomenon. When a craft or something is around, electrical equipment, vehicles, things like that seem to mess up a lot. But she was eventually able to. And note the way she took that, talking about it being somebody straight out of the Bible, or something she attributed to that. Now, could this be the same kind of persuasion technique that we see from some of these abductors at times? We also note the watches and how they stopped. Or rather, Elaine's had stopped, while Louise's began to act oddly. This is also well known within the abduction phenomena. This happens time and time again. Now, I found some of these things interesting and just wanted to point them out to you guys. I think that adds a little more validation to this case. And I know that others have done other podcasts on it, as I said in the beginning of the episode. So I wanted to do something a little unique with it. Now, with that, I'm going to let you guys go. I want to thank you guys again for listening. I want to thank the Ghoulies for Hot Rods from Outer Space. And I definitely want to say that this case is going in my book. If you guys want to get in contact with me, hit me up at theufosyahoo.com. Hit me up on my Facebook page. Even if you just want to say hello, you want to debate me, you want to maybe appear on a podcast, or you just want to share your story with me personally. 
I would also ask that you guys please share this podcast and give it a rating. I don't have many in the life, you guys need the map. Or anything that I could improve on. Now I'm gathering up more listeners for you guys. And I got some fun episodes lined up for you. So with that, I'll see you guys next time. Remember the UFOs want to tell you something. Keep kicking it.